Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Great to have you here to celebrate with us today. If you have a Bible with you, if you want to find uh, Joshua chapter 5. Joshua is uh, just a little way into your Old Testament if you have one with you. If not, don't worry, the words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me. I'm just going to read from verse 13 to verse 15, and I'll pray, and then we'll look at this passage together. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that we can uh, celebrate just your faithfulness, God. Every time we gather or every time we're even alone, we can pray and we can celebrate in our own hearts the fact that you're a faithful God, that you're a promise keeper. You've made this eternal covenant with us that we can know that with you, our souls are well, that you've saved us, you've added us into your family as your children, that you love us dearly, not dependent on who we are or what we've done, but totally dependent on your grace. We thank you that the story of our lives and the story of this church is all about your marvelous, wonderful grace poured out for us. And we never want to run away from that. We never want to run into our own efforts, or our own dreams or plans. Jesus, we always want to be following where you're going and what you're doing. So we pray you'd speak to us and guide us this morning by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome. It's great to have you here with us uh, to celebrate our birthday. I'll tell a little bit of our story today, because I know some of you will have heard this numerous times before. Some of you were part of it. Some of you are brand new to this church. Uh, so welcome if that's you, particularly if this is your first time in here today. It might be a bit of a weird Sunday to walk into. There's a whole history that you are uh, very new to today, but please, we hope you feel very much at home amongst us this morning. If you have any questions about any part of the service, please feel free to ask me, or there's a team at the back with some Ask Me badges on. You can ask them whatever question you have. We, uh, Joe and I, we moved here with our family in uh, 2014. Uh, we gathered with a small team, as about 10 uh, adults, about 11 kids, um, and we started to gather in our apartment in Vatagrasmir uh, in the east of the city. And we didn't really have much of an idea of what God had in store for us. Um, you know, we just wanted to love Jesus, uh, love this city, and love each other. And hopefully, nothing's changed. 
We want that always to be at the very center of who we are and what we do. And initially, our strategy was pretty simple. Uh, we were all, well, many of us, not all of us, but many of us were new to the city. We just wanted to learn what it would be to live in a city like this. Uh, we didn't want to come in and pose our own ideas, say, well, this is the way we should do things, but we wanted to get to know people in the city, get to know how the city worked. We wanted to build a, a team of people to help serve this city together, and we wanted to get, obviously, our families settled in the city for those of us who moved in. Uh, there was lots of food. We would gather at uh, 10 in our apartment. We'd do a sh very short service, I guess you could call it that, and then we would eat until we could eat no more. We lots of food, lots of laughter, lots of tears. It was a fun, fun few months together. And then after about a, just over a year in uh, October 2015, we took our kind of first bold move. We took a bit of a brave step and we decided to stop meeting in our apartment and uh, move to a venue uh, in, the, uh, in the east of the city called the Mirror Center which uh, if you haven't been to the Mirror Center, it's called that for a reason, because all the rooms have mirrors around the wall, which is brilliant when you're a really small church, right? Because you look around, and just mirrors reflecting, made it look like there were loads of us. And it was a bit of a risk for us, to be honest. You know, sometimes you, when you feel God has called you to do something, there's some steps of faith that you need to take. And this, together, corporately, was a bit of a step of faith, the risk we had to take together, and nothing happened. That was what it felt like for us, at least initially, that we'd had all these dreams, all these ideas, and yet no one really wanted to come to our church, which perhaps isn't a surprise in a city like Amsterdam, famous for being a secular city, a city without God, a city where God and religion is something is in its past. But yet we still had dreams. We still wanted people to come to know Jesus. We wanted people to come and encounter him. We wanted people to come to our church, and no one wanted to come. We felt a bit like, you know, when, when, a, when a band or an artist released their first album, you know, and then nobody buys it. Like David Bowie, his first album was called David Bowie and nobody brought it. No one listens to it now because it's, it's, it's awful. <laughs> it really is. Someone wrote of it later that it was the vinyl equivalent of the madman in the attic. It's just, it's not really a great review of an album. And I think we felt a bit like that. We were the mad people in the mirror center, you know? We were trying to do this courageous thing and yet no one was really that interested in what we were doing. We prayed and we planned and it wasn't just with the church, but we found in lots of ways, for those of us who moved to the city, we were, there were things that were, we were finding hard about life. There were lots of things we were praying that we felt like God wasn't answering those prayers. Don't know if you've ever had one of those seasons in your life. And when you're in the middle of it, it feels like it lasts forever, you know? When you're seeking God and you're praying Maybe there's a burden that God's given you, or maybe there's just a difficult life situation you're having to walk through, and you're seeking him again and again, and nothing, nothing seems to change, nothing seems to happen. And then we, uh, one of the things we'd done when we moved house is we'd sold our car. We've got four kids, so we had one of those big, horrible, you know, truck 
people wagon sort of things, where you just squeeze in as many kids as you can. You open the door and they keep sort of popping out. So we sold that because I hate those things. And then we brought the, uh, the Dutch equivalent of backfeet, right? And you just pile the kids all in the front of that. And then one day, uh, just after we'd started meeting in the Mirror Center, somebody stole our backfeet from outside our home. We had it locked up and they just cut through the chain in the middle of the night and uh, took it away. And, and, you know, I know it's just a bike, but I was really angry. I really was. You know, have you ever prayed um, any kind of thunderbolt prayers? Yeah? When you think of a person, you think, I've got a plan of what you could do with their life, God. And it involves a thunderbolt. It's lightning from heaven. I wouldn't recommend you pray those prayers, but even if you do, God doesn't normally answer them, in my experience, but you can give it a try if you want. But I was angry, I was frustrated, uh, and this, our bike being stolen, for me, be kind of, it kind of became symbolic of all the things that we were praying for that God wasn't answering. Because we prayed and we asked God, God, would you, would you give us this bike back? And nothing happened, and we prayed again and again and again, and nothing seemed to happen. And because, you know, I've got a huge ego, I, I took this all upon myself, and, and I got frustrated and I got cross with God. I remember one day I was walking through um, a park in the city and I, I was praying to God, God, are you for us or are you against us? That was what was on my heart. That's what I was praying. God, are you with us or not? You know, you've called us to do this thing. You told us to move here and yet none of this seems to be working. Are, are you for us or not? I'm sure, again, some of you can probably relate to that kind of prayer, that experience in your life. And God reminded me of these verses in, in, in Joshua. It was a bit of a slap down from the Lord, just as I was walking through the park, of when uh, Joshua sees this man, this mysterious man in front of him, and says, are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you for us or are you against us? And what does... This commander of the Lord's army, what does he reply? He says, no. <laughs> it's a bit of a cryptic answer, isn't it? Are you with us or are you not with us? No. It doesn't really answer the question. <laughs> I felt God give me that same answer. That really, God, it's not that God wants to come. So often we bring our plans, our, our ideas, our dreams to God our, our way of doing things, our life purpose, because we're trained to think like that. We're trained to have our own dreams, the plan for our life, the idea we want, and say, God, come and bless it. This great idea I've had, come and bless it. That's not how God works. What God wants to do is call us into his plans and purposes. And the question isn't really, is God for you or against you? You can, you can read in Romans and know for sure that he is for you. He is for you. But really, it's about you coming in under his hand, under his purposes, and saying, God, no, it's not about you coming and being on my team, but I'm on your team. And that's where God led us to as a small little community of people. So what we did is, this was in January 2016, is that we just began to pray 
and we, we cancelled out. We would meet uh, every uh, Sunday, obviously, and then we would meet every week. We have a little community group in our apartment, um, and we'd eat lots of food. And we said, well, we're not going to do that for a while. We're just going to pray, and we'll just keep praying until something happens. So we do that every Wednesday. We just gathered, and we prayed, and we prayed, we prayed. And again, nothing happened. The theme of this story. And I became, it, it, you know, you might think I'd already reached a bit of a low point, but I became increasingly despondent. And then in uh, the 28th of February, 2016, I wrote this in my journal. I wrote, I feel so blunted, so inadequate. You can see again, I'm a huge egotist here. So little I've done seems to have worked. So few of my prayers seem to have been answered. And I guess what I realized later was, that sound, might sound like a bit of a morbid prayer, you know. <laughs> I wasn't even really praying, I was just writing. Why aren't you answering my prayers? You know, I, I, I can't do this. I feel so inadequate. But actually, what God had led me to actually was perhaps the real heart of what prayer is. Sometimes we feel like prayer is us coming and with a kind of a big joyful shout, kind of almost cheering God on, and it can be that. But often it's just coming before God and saying, I don't know how to do this, but you do. Help is a pretty good way to pray. There's a writer called Paul Miller who said, dependency is the heartbeat of prayer. So when it starts getting uncomfortable, don't pull back from God. He's just starting to work. The writer J.I. Packer said, the prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but humble acknowledgement of our helplessness and dependence. That's what it is to pray. It's just to come before God and say, you're in charge. I don't know how this works. I don't even really understand how prayer works. But I know that you're sovereign. I know that you're in control. And I'm just going to trust my life to you and see what happens. You know, that's what prayer is so often. And uh, you might think that I'm crying, but I'm not. Because <laughs> if you've been part of this church for a while, you know that's something that never happens <laughs> when I'm on the stage here. Some of you are laughing a bit too energetically. So I, I, because uh, I was a bit grumpy, I turned to Habakkuk, which if you want to find a good moaner in the Bible, Habakkuk is a good place to start. In Habakkuk 1 verse 2, he says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? It's a pretty kind of, a fairly blunt thing to find in the Bible, isn't it? Can you question God like that? You know, how long will I pray to you and you won't hear me? And that's kind of what I was feeling like. But fortunately, wonderfully, God replies in verse 5. God replies to Habakkuk and says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. See, prayer, you might think this maybe if you're here this morning and you're 
not a believer in Jesus, or you're not sure about the claims of the Christian faith. You might think prayer, maybe you're here and you're a Christian and you actually secretly believe this, that prayer is just like something we do to make us feel a bit better. It's just a bit of escapism, you know? When you're feeling a bit low, you can watch just a nice comedy on Netflix just to kind of take your mind off the issues in your life. That prayer is just the same, it's just a bit of escapism. We know it doesn't really work, but it's something we do to help us escape from reality. Actually, prayer isn't like that at all. Prayer's the exact opposite. Prayer draws us into true reality. Prayer draws us into who God really is, what he's, what he's doing. Prayer kind of, it, it sort of pulls back the curtain. You suddenly get a glimpse of his grace, of his plans. And I was convinced that nothing was happening, but yet, so often we don't get to see behind the scenes of how God's at work. So this was February, uh, uh, 28th of February, 2016, and all this is happening, writing my journal and reading Habakkuk, and it was a Sunday morning, and I went to church and uh, probably cried, uh, probably. And then, uh, I think it was on the Tuesday, just two days later, we got this phone call from the police. This was six months after our backfeet was stolen, saying that they'd found our bike. Which is kind of remarkable, because I can't remember the statistics. It's something like 70,000 bikes are stolen in Amsterdam every year. We had like four or five stolen, just from our family. But tens of thousands every year. And the police find about 50, which is like 0.0 something percent, you know. So when you call up the police and say, oh, someone's stolen my bike, can you find it? I'm then not going to laugh at you, but they're not going to do much, all right? There's not much that's going to be able to happen. And of backfeats, because they're quite expensive, it costs us a fair amount of money, the police never find them. And yet, God decided he wanted to return it to us. I had this wonderful moment where uh, they called us up, so I went down to the police station, and they have this room out the back. You know, like in the movies, where you have to go into the room to identify the dead body, you know, and they kind of pull back the cover. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's my son. Well, it was a bit like that. They pull back the cover. Is, Sir, is that your back feet? Like, yeah, that's my bike. <laughs> It was a wonderful moment. I cycled home, even though the tires were flat. I cycled all the way home, like high-fiving the kids on the street. It was just like this wonderful, this moment of profound joy. And you see that, I guess the, the lesson that God was graciously trying to teach us is that he's in charge, right? <laughs> it's not really about how good a leader I am, how great a family I have, how great a team we have, what a kind of pumping, amazing church this is. God's in charge. He leads this church. And when we're still asleep, when we're still dreaming behind the scenes, he's at work. Because in this story, Joshua has just entered into the promised land. If you've been around Liberty for a while, 
Earlier this year, we've been working through the book of Exodus, which tells the story of the people of God being rescued, redeemed out of Egypt, and then heading to the promised land. But Moses never gets to take the people in there, but Joshua did. He's crossed over into this land that God has promised for them, and he's facing up to Jericho, this city with this huge wall around it, like an armored city. And where we get to in the story is Joshua's basically gone to kind of spy out, he's gone to check it out. He's on a scouting mission, trying to figure out how he's going to take the city. And then, all of a sudden, this mysterious man kind of comes and stands before him with his sword drawn, ready for action. Um, and, well, who is this mysterious man? Well, many theologians would call this a, a theophany, God showing up. That this is God, this is Jesus standing before him, the commander of the armies of the Lord, waiting to go into battle. And that's the reality of who we come to when we come to Jesus. That's the reality of what it means to start churches, is that he's in charge, is that God takes the initiative. When God speaks to you, and when God calls you to do something, he doesn't just then leave you to your own devices. He's with you. Not only is he with you, but he's gone ahead of you. He's gone ahead of you to fight the battles that need to be fought. He's gone to lead the way. God takes responsibility. He's the commander-in-chief. He's leading the charge. He's got his sword drawn. He's ready for battle. And that might be perhaps a bit of an uncomfortable view of what God's like, this kind of military leader with his sword ready to fight. You might think, well, I didn't know God was like that. I thought Jesus was gentle and meek and kind. And we were talking about that yesterday with our around with a couple of my daughters, we were talking about what God's like, and we were reading this passage together. And one of my daughters said, oh, it's a bit like in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know that book, or the film that, uh, from Narnia? And uh, I'm gonna read a, part, a bit of it to you today. The three main characters are Susan, Lucy, and Peter, who are three kids who walk through this kind of magical wardrobe behind all the clothes, and they enter into this wonderful new world. Have any of you here tried to walk through the back of a wardrobe to see what's on the other side? A few of you have, yeah. <laughs> so they walk through this wardrobe and enter into this magical world, and then the bit we're gonna get to in the story is they meet someone called Mr. Beaver. Now, Mr. Beaver is actually a beaver. This isn't like just, it's not just his surname, it's not like Alan Beaver. This, it's part of the story, really, they meet a beaver, so you just gonna have to deal with that, okay, that there's a talking beaver in the story. Let's pick it up here. It's, they're talking about meeting Aslan, who's like the lion, the kind of the king in the story. And, the, and Susan says, but shall we see him? And Mr. Beaver replies, why, daughter of Eve, that's why I, what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him. Is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, 
The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? As she'll feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. You can tell this book is written by an Englishman, right? Such an English way of putting it. Ooh, I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. <laughs> that you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. Mr. Beaver's married to Mrs. Beaver. <laughs> if there's anyone who could appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. <laughs> isn't that amazing that that's what Jesus is like? He's not safe. He's got his sword drawn ready for battle. That might scare you, but he's good. He's a good father. And he loves you. He loves us, this church, this people, but he's called us onto his adventure. He's in charge of his church. Because the thing about, the thing that Jesus is passionate about in heaven right now, what Jesus is praying for is his church. It's his people, not just here, but all across this city, all across the world. Because that's God's plan. The church gets a bit of a bad press, bad reputation, but if you read the New Testament, you'll find that's God's plan for the broken world that we live in. It's his people, us, that he's sent into the world on his mission. But he's not just sent us out empty-handed, but he's put his Holy Spirit within us. He's gone ahead of us. He's leading the charge into the world around us. And that means when it comes to Liberty Church, that despite what we often feel, we can trust him. We can trust him for what he has next for us. So one of the things that we're going to do next Sunday is we're launching a new service. Uh, we're going to start uh, another service, uh, a venue just across the other side of the city center, a little cafe. Uh, we're going to meet there at half past five. Um, and we're not doing it because it's just kind of empire building, you know, advance the kingdom of liberty. Well, we are trying to do that, but not, you know, as a brand. <laughs> but we're wanting more people to come and encounter Jesus. Perhaps people that might not walk into a building like this, but might find it more comfortable to walk into a small, intimate cafe with just a few people. So we're gonna be starting a new service next week. And will it all go to plan? Probably not. That's my experience of starting new things for Jesus, starting churches. It doesn't really always go how we expect. But is he with us? Yes, God's with us. It's not because he's on our side, but because we're, we're seeking to be on his side. The writer, the preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, when he was looking at this verse where Joshua meets this Jesus with his sword drawn, ready for battle, he says, oh, what power there is in the gospel. He's right. There's power in the gospel. And when Jesus holds the hilt, that's the, the handle of the sword, and what gashes it makes into hearts that were adamantly hard, when Jesus cuts right and left at the hearts 
and consciences of men. So what we take into battle is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He loves us. He died for us. He gave his life for us so that we could be free, that we could have liberty. That's what the name Liberty Church is all about. It's not just about being kind of happy. It's about knowing that because of what he's done for us, we can now have freedom and liberty in him. In a city that's searching for exactly that, people flock to our city because they want to have liberty, freedom to be who they want to be. And yet so often we find that's just an empty promise. But in Jesus Christ, you really truly can have freedom. And so when we launch a new service, we're trusting that there's a power in the gospel, that God will speak, that God will work, that God will break into hearts. And Jesus is not just the warrior hero for the church, but for you too. He's definitely not safe, but he's supremely, powerfully, wonderfully good for you. He's good for you. And this king has gone into battle to fight against your enemies, against death, against sin, against the devil, and he's defeated them. He's vanquished his enemies so that you could be free. And the question for us today is really not, God, are you on my team, but the question is, who will you serve? At the end of Joshua's life, he asks a question to his to his followers, it says in Joshua 24, this is Joshua speaking, he says, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's a question that all of you have to face is, who are you going to serve? You might not like that question because you might think, well, I'm in charge of my life. I don't serve anybody. I just serve myself. But the reality is all of us end up serving one God or other. And it can be Jesus Christ, or it can be, we don't have to worry about the gods of the Amorites, but the gods of this city. The things around you that control you, even though you pretend that they don't, the things that have a grip on your life, who are you going to serve? One of the big gods, one of the big idols of our city is money, right? We all know that pulling our hearts the arguments we have about money, the worries that we have, the fear that you can have, well, that's just a sign that maybe there's a God there that's trying to lead you astray. It says in the Bible, you can't so serve both God and money, that one of them will have a hold on your life. And I want to serve Jesus, don't you? Before anything else. And a good way to do that and to put that into action is actually just to give money away. Joe and I have found through our marriage that uh, there's been many occasions where we've just said, ah, let's just give it away. You know, we could probably use this for X, Y, and Z, and, or he just might give us a bit of security, a bit of safety. 
But again and again, we just want to trust God and say, I'd rather invest in the kingdom of God than anything else. I'd rather put my money into something that's going to last forever rather than something that will be gone in a week or a few days.